Good morning, everyone. Well, it is good to see you this morning. I would love to have you take your Bibles and join me in the book of Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. You remember that last Sunday we began what will be a lengthy journey uh, through the 66 chapters of Isaiah. And so week two, here we go. Um, There is a rhythm that I hope you have found to be familiar on the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And that is the rhythm that even in seasons of darkness and difficulty, that light and hope are never far away. It's important that you know that, not only in the Scripture, but that you know that for your life as well. As often we walk through seasons of difficulty, or specifically, as we'll see in our text, times of God's judgment in particular. Even in times of God's judgment, hope is never far away. And we see that, of course, all the way through the pages of Scripture. It should be familiar to us if you've read the Bible very much. If you read the book of Lamentations, you know that it's a book of lament. Uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, uh, grieving deeply, the national destruction all around him, and there in the middle, he says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I have hope in him. Right in the middle. Then he goes back to grieving again. Uh, you, You can think of, other texts that speak of hope in the midst of sorrow. Jesus, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good courage, I've overcome the world. So, in our text today, uh, we have finished chapter 1 and we ended on a note of judgment. Chapter 2, we'll quickly get there. Verse 6 heads right back to statements of judgment. But the first part of chapter 2, is a breath of fresh air, a breath of hope. Now, that pattern then will continue. Next week, we'll be looking at chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3, again, tones of judgment, serious stuff. And then chapter 4, again, pulling us up and giving us the bigger picture and breathing life and hope into us. So I, I hope that that rhythm is familiar to you. It is in our text today. But again, I hope it's a part of your life because as we walk through this life, often we face seasons of difficulty and struggle and sadness and grief. And hope should never be far away. Okay? That's the promise of Scripture, full of hope. Well, we'll see all of that today. It is my goal, my desire, that God would use his word today uh, to encourage us and to help us. So if you'd pray with me, I would love that, and we'll jump into our, our study for the morning. Our Father, how we delight to come and to open the Word of God together with the people of God and chance uh, after a busy week, um, whatever stresses and pressures have been ours, to be able to come again and uh, have ourselves reoriented once more to the things that are true and right and good, which way is up, so to speak. And I pray that you'd help us. Father, you know right where each person is who has come today. You know our struggles, you know our needs, right where we're at. So would you give us today what it is that each of us needs, Um, even if it is just the the whisper of hope that the Spirit of God gives. Do grant that. 
But help us now as we come to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. On the sermon notes in your bulletin, you'll see, of course, the familiar section with words of review. Uh, I'm not going to go over those elements again. just gave you a few reminders of things we talked about last week about the person, Isaiah, and the book that bears his name. So you can read those reminders, and, and uh, I, I will just mention the two blanks there. Uh, judgment and hope are two of the major themes. That'll be important today, of course, as I said, but there are other big themes in Isaiah, but those two I'm just reminding us of. Judgment and hope, I think, are significant. Now, today's text, I've given you a paragraph that describes the part of the Bible we're dealing with, and I always like to do that. I think it's important for us to always be thinking, what am I reading, where it's at, and what's true of it? Well, chapters 2 to 5 of Isaiah seem to, seem to be like one long sermon or discourse, And so today, we're just taking a part of that, but it seems to seamlessly flow one into the other. And I mentioned here as well that part of Isaiah 2 is nearly word for word presented in Micah 4, what we often call one of the minor prophets. You're familiar, perhaps, that some of the larger books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, uh, we often, Daniel, we often think of as major prophets. Uh, more substantive and meaty and so on. Some of the shorter ones that then follow minor prophets are often called. Micah, though, and uh, that text, Micah chapter 4, 1 to 3, is very similar to this text in Isaiah. And I take it that Micah, the younger prophet, took good notes in seminary class. And when it was time to him to preach, he just said, here it is. And that's my best guess. We'll see about that. Now, I want to to ask for your uh, indulgence here Uh, I want to say a few things about Bible study and interpretation that will help us today. My goal is always that as a result of us coming to worship regularly, that all of us will be better students of the Bible wherever we're at. Some of us are are, are rookies, haven't read much of the Bible, just kind of getting started. Others of us have been studying the Bible for years. But there are reminders that are really good for us. And so here, a word about Bible study and interpretation that will affect our text today. Here you go. In literary terms, Isaiah is largely a prophetic book. Uh, You're aware that in the Bible, there are different types of literature. Maybe you remember different kinds of literature from English class, or you just, you know, that was eighth grade, and it's like, forget it. I don't know a thing about this. Well, in the Bible, there are different kinds of literature, and there are different rules for literature, okay? For example, the book of Proverbs is a book, remarkably, full of of Proverbs. And Proverbs are Proverbs, not promises. And sometimes people get in trouble with reading and studying Proverbs because they take them as promises from God, and they're not intended to be. They're proverbial statements, meaning typically it's like this. For example, if a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Well, that's a proverb. Is it a promise? Well, no, actually not. They killed Jesus and his ways were surely pleasing to the Father. But it's a proverb, so that's a type of literature. Poetry would be another. The Psalms are poetic. And you notice that there, especially in certain, certain of them, different uh, rhythms and meters that, that kind of fit poetry. Sometimes the, the different phrases will parallel another. You say, that's kind of the same thing. It's a, it's a form of poetry. We're familiar with these in English. You know, roses are red, violets are blue. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da is the way it goes. And if it didn't follow that form, you'd, you know, your kid's supposed to write something like that. You'd say, 
You didn't get it right. There's a form, a limerick. Well, same in the Bible. Prophetic literature then has a number of characteristics. It's sometimes looking to the future. We typically think of the prophets that way, looking to the future. Not always. Sometimes prophecy is forth telling, like a good sermon, okay? So it's still a prophet speaking, but it might be a sermon. It might be about the future. But often in, po- in prof- prophetic literature, sometimes there's poetry, forms and structures like that, a lot of figures of speech, and even apocalyptic lang- language. I wanted to say a word about figures of speech and right into my next line here, okay? The second bullet point. These go together. The literal historical grammatical approach to the Bible means that we read the Bible according to the normal and customary uses of language. Every now and then I'm asked, as maybe you are, it's usually snarky, something like this. Are you one of those people that takes the Bible literally? Right? And the minute you hear that question, you know you're in trouble if you say yes or no. So I never say yes or no. I always want to go back and define what you mean by literally, because there's the magic, okay? Uh, What do you mean by literally? Well, if you mean by that, I take it according to the normal and customary uses of language, unless otherwise indicated, and I read the history and read the grammar and figure out what it meant in its setting and to the original audience. Well, yes, if that's what you mean by literal, sure. But if you mean stupid, by literal, no, I won't sign off on that. And let me give you some examples of what I mean by that. Uh, figures of speech we're familiar with. And in English, we get it. If I say to you, I'm going to run down to the store and grab a gallon of milk. What do you think I'm doing? I am, thank you, I am not running to the store. I just said what you just said. It would be, we couldn't have conversations if we took all figures of speech out of our language. We wouldn't know what to do. Um, we'd be running around like a chicken. Wait, hold it. That's a figure of speech, and we would be in trouble right away. Now, similarly, in the Bible, there are figures of speech. Um, The winds from the four corners of the earth. Square, flat, and it's a square. Oh, stop. So to take the Bible literally doesn't mean that you say, well, it says four corners. There must, come on. The sun rises and the sun sets. See, the Bible, you can't take that literal. You don't either. Sunrise, sunset. We know it's the earth. Did you guys all know that? You got the memo? The earth rotates around the sun. But we still say sunrise and sunset because it's, uh, those are, it's a figure of speech for the appearance. Okay, the Bible does a lot of that sort of thing. So to say uh, literal historical grammatical approach doesn't mean that you miss all that. No, so to... I say all this and belabor the point to say, if the Bible is talking about, say, like the next bullet point, the nation of Israel, I take that to mean, amazingly, the nation of Israel, unless something would lead me to believe otherwise. So my third bullet point here, I want to take a moment on this. Now, the book of Isaiah says a lot about the nation of Israel, describing Israel as the nation God created and chose, and particularly the nation written on the palms of his hands, 49 Verse 16. Now, many of Isaiah's prophecies have been literally fulfilled, uh, even though it's a prophetic book. People say, well, there's symbolism. I, I, know that, I know there is. But there have been many of Isaiah's prophecies literally fulfilled. For example, judgment on the nation of Israel, judgment on the nations. Um, Behold, the virgin will be with child, and bring forth a son who calls him Emmanuel, God with us, and in Jesus. This is fulfilled with Jesus. Isaiah 53, the servant. The suffering servant would come, and he would suffer, and he would bear our sins, Jesus, in his own body on the cross, literally fulfilled in the person of Christ. 
And so to magically then say, okay, those are literally fulfilled in this way, but the others are just all symbolic. Okay, hold on. Um, I believe there should be some consistency here. So I want to say this. I believe that when the Bible is speaking about the nation of Israel, it's speaking about the nation of Israel. And there is a movement in theology today, some of you are aware of, um, or you perhaps have heard uh, people speak using this as a framework or read books by them that, that teach that the church replaces Israel, okay? Replacement theology, it is sometimes called, or if you want the really cool name that you probably can't spell without looking it up, uh, just Google it. It'll give it to you. Supersessionism, okay? Supersede, that the church supersedes, takes over the nation of Israel. If you'd like to think about this more in detail, a couple books I would suggest you read. These are more academic, and they'll keep, you know, they won't keep you up at night. You'll go to sleep. Uh, Has the Church Replaced Israel? Dr. Michael Vlock would be a good read on that specific topic. Has the Church uh, Replaced Israel? And then more broadly on Israel as a nation, uh, this book called Forsaking Israel, which is a, a collection of essays from seminary faculty at a reputable seminary back east that I have some ties with. So Forsaking Israel would be, again, a a very academic read, but you might take a look at these things if you would like to think about that topic. Okay, make sense? Are we good? I just wanted to tell you where I'm coming from. Let's read the Word of God. We're going to read, first of all, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and deal with that. And then we're going to move to chapter 2, verses 6 to 22, and deal with that under a separate heading. But hear God's Word then, this this uh, statement of hope. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Wow. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Wow. Do you want to go there? Doesn't that sound good? No more weapons of war. People streaming to hear from the living God. What an amazing thing is described here. Have we seen anything like it? Well, no, I don't think so. Um, now, before I step into dealing this with this specifically under the heading there on your, your notes, I want to remind you with that first bullet point of the rhythm here. We're stepping out of a, a statement of judgment, and there's another one coming. But God, through the prophet Isaiah, it's like he pauses here and says, judgment is not the final word. Difficult times are not the end. 
And it's interesting that even as he's about to spring into, again, as we'll see in a moment, more words of judgment. We're going to go there. These these moments of hope, it's like God knows that we need them. Those breaths of fresh air that, that, that just help us to think and remember, no, this isn't all there is. It's not all there is. The reasons to hope. God has this in his hands. He has a future plan. The end toward which God is moving, humanity and the universe, okay? And there is an end. The end toward which God is moving, humanity and the universe, all that is, is not a big flash of light. People talk about the sun, if it's supernova, what would happen? Well, yeah, it'd be a big flash of light, bam, like a, like a mosquito on one of those cool bug lights, and that would be it, okay? You'd never know. Well, the Bible says that isn't the way it'll be, that God is moving humanity and all that he's created toward a sure end that, yes, involves some judgment, but ultimately to the praise of the glory of his grace, Ephesians 1. So the glory of God, his majesty, he rules and reigns. God wins. Glorious end, a glorious future. So please remember that, even as you and I do mountains and valleys. No, God knows, he knows, he knows he does. And he is moving us all in that direction toward his glorious end. All right, having said that, let's look specifically at this text, okay? Based on everything I said about Bible study, interpretation, hermeneutics, if you want the cool word, there you go. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, then, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning, well, Judah and Jerusalem. They are very specific places. So unless you have a reason to think it means something completely different in Judah and Jerusalem, I take it to mean Judah and Jerusalem. We mentioned last week at this time uh, that Isaiah is prophesying the nation is split into north and south, Judah in the south, Jerusalem as its capital city. So I take it to be referring to something relative to that specific geographical place. It shall come to pass in the latter days, or some of your Bibles will say the last days. Those are the two translations that seem to prevail, the latter days or the last days, all right? Now, you know from study of the New Testament that the term the latter days or the last days is is freely used to describe the period from Christ, especially his death, burial, and resurrection, on So it is proper biblically to say, are we living in the last days? Well, yes. We always want to know, though, are we in the last of the last days? That's really what we want to know. I mean, sun turning dark and all kinds of cool stuff going on, like the book of Revelation. Is that where we are? Well, we don't know that until it happens. Last days? Well, yes. Now, uh, so it comes to pass in the last days. So somewhere in the latter days, what's describing is being described here is, is to take place. Now, I mentioned here in your sermon notes, Jesus, the apostles, and other New Testament writers regularly identified, I should say, then contemporary events, contemporary to them, as fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. That is routine. There are so many examples of this, I could hardly begin to write them down, but I gave you three. The prophets uh, looked ahead to that, those last days, latter days, and Jesus and the apostles said, that's us. That's us, that period of time after Jesus. For example, Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. We referenced this briefly last week. This is where Jesus says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. That's kind of fascinating. Similarly, Acts 2.16, day of Pentecost, 
Peter is preaching, and he, he references the prophecy in Joel, where he says, it'll come about in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit, and your sons and daughters will dream, dream, dream dreams and all kinds of cool things. And Peter says, this is it. This is what was prophesied about in, in the book of Joel. And likewise, if you go to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3, 17 to 26, that's the book of Acts, as you, hopefully you understood that from the, the sentence there. Acts 3, 17 to 26, again, a, a section of Peter's sermon. Look at how many times he mentions the prophets. Over and over again, the prophet said, the prophet said, the prophets said this. He can hardly talk without saying, remember the Old Testament? It's happening, people. Here it is. Prophecy being fulfilled. So I'm just identifying that it's normal in the New Testament to have texts like this, like Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days, and have it look ahead and say it's talking about something up here. Now, I mentioned, third bullet point, the text speaks of a glorious future season of peace between nations with God ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and his word flowing forth to guide all the nations. Wow. So, for example, I look at my Bible. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord. Well, in the Bible, typically, the house of the Lord refers to the temple or a temple, a centralized house of the Lord. The mountain of the house of the Lord would refer to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, as you know, uh, it was higher, not the highest, but higher than other parts of the nation of Israel. If you're going to go, for example, from Jericho to Jerusalem, even if you were going north, it would be proper to say we're going up to Jerusalem, going uphill. So people talked like that. We're going up, we're going up to the mountain of the house of the Lord to worship. It would have been normal speak. And here then, it seems to be speaking about Jerusalem. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Wow. People's coming and saying, let's go. Let's go to the mountain of the Lord. Let's go to, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in, in his paths. Out of Zion, Jerusalem, that is, shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see those two lines parallel? That's a poetic feature where one line says almost the same thing as the one before it, just in different language. It's a, a common feature in, in Scripture of this kind of, of material. Out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, now listen, if you, if you read and study prophetic literature, some of you do, especially in the last couple of years, some of you have been lit up with reading prophecy for some reason. What's going on? Is this the end? And you're checking it out. Well, it's from texts like this that those who write things about prophecy, whether you agree with them all or not, isn't the point. I'm just pointing it out. It's from texts like this that people look ahead and say, it sounds to me like there's going to be a future temple in Jerusalem. It's, it's from places like this, a house of the Lord where the nations are going to come. I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen the nations put down all their weapons. This must be talking about something future. And again, I'm just pointing out where people get this, this, these teachings from, from places like this, because verse 5 talks about the Lord settling disputes. So when is this? Now, track with me, okay? This can't really be the eternal state, we call it, like heaven, ultimately, because there are disputes among people, and I kind of thought we were done with that when we got like right into heaven, right? So it doesn't sound like it's the eternal state, all this nation stuff and beating swords. Why do they have swords? Okay, it doesn't sound like the eternal state, and it surely doesn't sound like anything I've seen now. 
So when is this? And it's from texts like this that we get all kinds of teaching on the kingdom age or the millennial kingdom. Now, I know people write it different, uh, books, and I, I, I do understand. I'm just pointing out, when you read Isaiah 2, this is the kind of text that people build that on. Okay? You get to think about that as you study your Bible. Other people read this and say, well, I think it's the church, and it speaks of the triumph of the gospel kind of taking over the world. That was a popular teaching some years ago, like quite a few years ago, before the 20th century happened. And suddenly there was world war and didn't look like the triumph of the gospel and the church taking over the world. Suddenly it looked like a big international bloodbath. And it shattered a lot of people's theology. They thought the world was getting better and better. And if we had more money and more education, surely things would improve. And then people started killing each other again, dropping bombs. They said, well, so much for that. Huh, back to the drawing board. Well, I have here on your notes, though the when and how are often debated here, I, I personally line up with those who see this as speaking of a kingdom age or a millennial kingdom. That's my framework. I'm not saying you have to have that framework to be a good Christian or understand the Bible, but when you hear me preach, you will hear me coming from that framework. All right? That makes sense? Is that fair? So even if you don't agree with that, just don't dislike me and meet me in the parking lot. But that's, that's my framework. I think it's talking about that. I think there is a millennial kingdom to come and that, this, I think this is describing that. It will beat their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Nation, not lifting up sword against nation. Never again learning war. Wow, amazing. But I, my, my bigger statement, even with nuances and differences, God the merciful Father will one day restore. And you can take that to the bank. All right? Now, verses 6 to 22. I have it under the heading, God the righteous judge is able to fully judge sin. I want you to know I sat and stared at my computer screen for quite a while this week trying to decide where to put the adjective fully. Because there's different emphasis. Is he fully able, which speaks of his ability? Is he able to fully judge, which speaks of his, the extent to which he can judge? Is he able to judge sin fully, which speaks of the outcome? Sin has been kind of beat up. And, oh boy, you see where I put it. This is hard. This is hard stuff. So I left it here. He's able to fully judge sin. I want to read 6 to 22 and just really very briefly deal with several things here and another little crash course in how to read Bible prophecy, okay? So you're getting double barrel today on some of these important things. But as I read Isaiah 2, 6 to 22, I want you to notice, look for some repetition there are a number of places where this verse shows up again. You'll say, I think we just read that, and we did. But hear God's word then. Isaiah 2, verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they're full of things from the east, of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands. That means they, they make covenants or agreements. That's what that means, like shaking hands. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. 
Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of men shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day." The idols shall utterly pass away, and the peoples shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he arises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver, their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Wow. Do you feel it? You feel the heat? Man, these are, these are words of judgment. And I, I, I say right off the bat, if you know, have ever known someone or even yourself have said, when there's a moment when I see God or there's a moment of judgment, I have a few things I want to say. I want you to know, when he rises to judge the earth, you will not be standing up. You, however much starch you have in your back, you will be looking for a rock to crawl under. You have your list of complaints against the Almighty. Bring it. Just bring it. You explain it to him. No, no. From before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Oh, no. Oh, no. In a full display of the glory of God, you're going to be crying like a baby and crawling under rocks. Don't give me this whole I got a list thing. Make sense? Okay, well, a couple things about prophecy, okay? When we studied Matthew a few years ago, um, we, we talked a bit about prophecy. It's in the book of Matthew a lot too, and I gave you just a couple of rules to keep in mind, and so I'm repeating them here. If you think this looks familiar and you were here when we studied Matthew, same thing, all right? So in the Bible, some prophecies, you would say, are this is that. For example, Micah 5.2. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're too little among the clans of Judah, out of you will come forth a ruler, the ruler of my people. Jesus, born in Bethlehem. That's described in Matthew 6 specifically as a prophecy of Jesus, born in Bethlehem. So this statement finds its fulfillment in that. This is that. Now, some prophecies are this is like that. One example, Hosea 11.1 makes reference to Out of Egypt, God called his son. Well, Israel as a nation is sometimes called God's son and was delivered from bondage in Israel. So indeed, out of Egypt, God called his son. And then in, um, where is it? Matthew 2.15, you find the story of Jesus with Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt and then being brought back by God. And it says to fulfill the prophecy, 
Out of Egypt I called my son. So there was a historical event that involved somebody being delivered from Egypt. And this new event is like that one. Do you see the difference? The first one is this statement is fulfilled here. The second one is there was an Old Testament event. Something happened. And then there's another one. And the writer here says, it's kind of like that. Here we go. A voice heard in rainbow, Rachel weeping for her children. This is like that, this New Testament event. There are many. And then a third that speaks to our text today. Some prophecies utilize what we might call prophetic foreshortening. Okay, there's different ways to speak of that, but uh, crash course here again. That is when a text addresses current circumstances while looking ahead to a future day that's similar and likely worse. So judgment today, and you go, wait a minute, are you talking about now or are you talking about something ahead? And the answer is yes. And they're like crushed together. So something is happening here, but there's something else out there that's even bigger and worse. Okay, that's it. That's a feature of many prophecies in the Bible. And I'm giving you one here, Revelation 6, 12 to 16, which you would read and not notice, perhaps, unless you're a careful reader, that it's an, it's an, it's an illusion, not an illusion, allusion to, to, to Isaiah 2. You might not even notice, but it is. Because Isaiah 2, verse 10, and verse 19, and 21 are reflected in what's taking place in Revelation 6. People looking for rocks to fall under, to to crawl under, because God is displaying himself in judgment at that moment. Things are going crazy. The world is being judged by God's future tense in, in terms of Revelation, and people are crawling under rocks. And you'd say, wait, where did I read that? You read it in Isaiah 2 three times. And it's taking place in full measure in Revelation 6. Okay, I hope, oh, I hope you tracked with all that. But I want us to see something specifically. If you look at the text I just read. First, God judges false worship. That is the worship of anything other than him. Verses 6 to 8, it describes all kinds of things, fortune tellers, money, treasures, horses. That's their cool means of getting around. Well, God isn't against treasure and silver and gold and horses, but if those are your God, he is. If those are the defining points of your life, if that's how you order your life, if those are the most important things to you, the Bible teaches that every human is a worshiper, even an atheist or an agnostic. Do you know that? You're still a worshiper. You worship something. Something is the unifying and uh, ordering factor in your life. You value something. Whatever controls your choices is God to you. It might be you. See? Everybody worships something or somebody. Everybody. Every human to be a human is to be a worshiper. Again, even those who say they're not, oh, they are. In that moment, they are God to them. Interesting. So God says he's going to judge false worship. Verse 18, the idols will utterly pass away. Verse 20, idols of silver, idols of gold, they make for themselves to worship. All pretenders to the throne, so to speak, are crushed. I love there in verse 20, that reference to the moles and the bats. Doesn't that make you want to go into that cave? I don't think the moles are in the cave. I think the bats probably are. But the moles, what is the idea here? Well, both of those are unclean animals that are kind of creepy. So it's prophetic language for saying, it's going to be awful. You're going to run into this cave and there are bats in there buzzing around. You're going to hate it even in there. Uh, That's the idea. Unclean, awful, terrifying 
you're underground and boom, here comes one of those, you know, moles are ugly. If you come across them, and if you were in a tunnel underground and one stuck his snout in there, you'd wish to be somewhere else. That's the idea, okay? Sorry if you are aficionado of moles. No, I don't think so. They're in there with other, like, slugs. Nobody, nobody has them as pets. Please don't, please don't break my understanding of that. God hates false worship. Verses 11 through 17, God judges pride and arrogance. You see this? The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then he says it again in verse 17. Kind of like brackets on this this big section where God says, you're lifted up and he's giving inanimate objects like big old uh, trees and so on, but also towers and fortified walls, things that people build to say, look at me, I'm protected, I'm strong, I'm mighty. And God says, if it's lifted up one day, I will crush it. See? Oh, you'll stand up and tell God a thing or two. Oh, you will not. You will cry like a baby and crawl into a hole in the ground, calling for your mother. Don't, don't, don't get, you know, all thinking you're going to explain it to the Almighty. No. God judges pride and arrogance. And by the way, lest you, lest you get this out of, out of place, when we think of God's judgment, we often think of, of certain moral sins, say God's going to get those guys not okaying any of those moral things we might quickly think of, but I hope you know that there's more in the Bible about how God hates and judges pride and arrogance than all of those moral sins that are bad. Pride and arrogance is way up there with the stuff that God hates. Uh, The six things the Lord hates, seven an abomination to him. Haughty eyes starts the list. Oh, I'm proud, all right. You know, even that, that humble pride Lord, thank you that I'm not like that. Remember, there was a Pharisee who did that. Stood a ways off, watched this guy over there praying. Said, man, look at that guy. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like that. I fast twice a week. I give alms to the poor. Boy, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. What a rotten. And God says, oh, really? Oh, really? No pride, arrogance. Elsewhere, you read, the Lord hates God judges. There's no place to hide. We've seen that. Verses 10, 19, and 21. And then I would say this, God judges, and his judgment days are certain. I point to verse 12, but I could as well go to verse 11. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, for the Lord of hosts has a day. And it's speaking of a day of judgment. That day, again, verse 17, the day, verse 20, in that day. And I, I, I think you could say, well, it's whenever God judges, yes. And at the same time, I, I think it would go further than that, especially verse 12. The Lord of hosts has a day. To study Bible prophecy, including New Testament, words of Jesus, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Prophet uh, Paul would say the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord. It's speaking about a coming season. It seems in the Bible to be more than a 24-hour day, a coming season when God will, when God will again deal with humanity in a much more obvious way in judgment, uh, and I think at that point, God has a future for national Israel. That's my presupposition along the way here. The day of the Lord, you should study that. I'm saying this, God, the righteous judge, is able to fully judge sin, and he will. First hour, someone asked me afterwards, is God going to judge me for my sin? What a good question. What a good question. That come to your mind? 
Because if this is talking about judgment day, and if that's me, I could be in deep trouble. And I'm so glad I could tell that person, uh, newer to faith, listen, when Jesus died on the cross, he judged all your sin. See, that's what he did there. He judged all your sin. The awfulness of the cross was the wrath of God being poured out on the perfect one. So no, if you're, a, if you're a believer, you're a child of God, no, you will not be judged for your sin. Now, in the New Testament, there's a description of accountability to God that results in rewards or loss. You want to jot this down, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5 would be places you could read about that. The bema, the bema seat, uh, that's for believers, but it's not about your sin. Your sin is not going to be judged before. It was judged when Christ died on the cross the glory of the gospel. I thought that was a really good question. Responding to God's word in worship and obedience, I just would point us in a couple of directions. This would be a good question for you to ask. Wherever you're at, is my heart proud? Is my heart proud? Do I know my need for God most profoundly? Or am I the master of my fate and the captain of my soul? And of course, I'm referring there, as some of you would recognize, to the poem Invictus, written a century and some ago. Um, Invictus is the Latin word for unconquerable, written by a a young man who I think was 17 at the time, um, for years had been fighting a terrible disease. Uh, It was, instead of to lose his life, was to lose part of a leg, 17. And he was writing this to say, this disease will not beat me. But he's also, if you read the whole thing, looking at, at death and even, I, I would suggest God himself and saying, I will not bow. Uh, if he means that, I hope he doesn't mean it in the ultimate sense. If he wants to fight a disease, yes, I'm with you in this. But I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. That young man, incidentally, was the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's figure, Captain John Silver, in Treasure Island. Wow. And that kid wrote the poem Invictus, Unconquerable, My Unconquerable Soul. Interesting little details. Are you... Is that you? The unconquerable soul, or have you bowed your heart before the God of heaven and in simple faith trusted Christ as your Savior? The ultimate arrogance, the ultimate arrogance is to say, God, I don't need your salvation. See, that's the ultimate arrogance. Oh, yes, you do, my friend. There is no other way for you to ever see him. Are you trusting Christ as your Savior from sin? Or are you too, too proud to bow the heart before him? And then I mentioned as well, everyone worships something. Everyone does. Everyone does. I hope you are worshiping in spirit and in truth the God who made you your Savior and Redeemer. We are going to remember Christ in communion as we close here today. And I want to pray that God would help us at this time to turn our hearts in faith to him. So would you join me in this? Our Father, how we thank you for your word. Thank you for this text that speaks to us both of comfort, hope, and the reality of your judgment. And our Father, I don't know how this falls on each person's ears in the room or those listening later. 
Father, where there is a, a, a proud arrogance that says, I really don't need you, that's interesting, but, but not so much. Our Father, would you break into that stony ground, even surprise that person as, as you bring change and draw them to yourself. Oh, Father, do that. Bring them to a place either today or in time to come where they would bow the knee and bow the heart before you, the God who made them, and trust Christ as their Savior from sin. Do it, Father. And for each of us, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that, in fact, we're not better than anybody else. The redeemed have been those redeemed, saved by the blood of Christ, deep need of a Savior. And Lord, in these moments, as we remember Christ, would you, would you just help our hearts to percolate well on the, the, the words of the gospel and our faithful Savior? Help us now to worship you well. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, we invite all who know Christ as our Savior to join us in remembering him in communion. All right? So come, please, and be served. It is written in the prophet Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Weigh that thought for a moment. My sin on his shoulders, the only innocent and pure one, he bore my sin. Jesus paid it all. This little cracker points us to the body of Jesus, bruised and battered for you and for me. Let's remember him together. And then if you shift scenes to another, just days before Jesus was to go to the cross, he met with some grieving people Mary and Martha, by name, their brother had died, and they both knew, Mary and Martha did, that if Jesus had come more quickly, he wouldn't have died. Their minds were wrestling with the, why didn't you come? They they ask it. And there's a moment where Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the judgment on the last day, the day, the resurrection, Jesus says. The resurrection isn't a thing. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever believes, uh, lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he says to Martha, do you believe this? Isn't that a a probing question? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Wow. Do you believe it? This little cup of juice points us to the blood of Christ shed for our sin that we can be forgiven by him. Jesus paid it all. Let's remember him together.
And I would love to pray for us, that God will cement his word in our hearts, that we might live before him with joy this week, whatever comes our way. Would you stand with me, please? Our Father, we head from this place of worship into a week that is unknown to us, but known to you. And thank you that come what may, whether by some strange chance the news encourages us this week, or whether it's just more of of what we receive regularly. Our Father, would you give us courage, help us to live with hope as children of God? Oh yes, to live in the world, live wisely in the world, but not be polluted by it. Father, fill us with the joy and peace that comes only from you, the joy and peace of the gospel. Remind us there's coming a day when all of these things of darkness and difficulty will indeed be vanquished. And as the song says, in that day, Christ, Lord of all. Give us great joy in you, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.